It's something for nothing. The Rush Fancast. Jerry and Steve with you. Hey, Jer, what's up? Um, nothing is up, Steve. How are you? <laughs> you still haven't come up with anything good to say when I say what's up. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are at the Rushcast. Email Jerry, the Rushcast at gmail.com. The base intro and outro is Lex, as always. And Jerry, I've got a surprise for you today. Cookies? I've got a Twitter poll. No way! I do, yeah. It's better than cookies. It is better than cookies. We talked about Snakes and Arrows not too long ago. Right. And while the Snakes and Arrows episodes were airing, I was Twitter polling. Okay. So here you go. Top four songs on Snakes and Arrows. Far Cry, Armor and Sword, Working Them Angels, and The Larger Bowl. Which did the Rush fans prefer? Far Cry. By a lot. Yeah. 57% said Far Cry. What do you think came in second? That's the tougher one. Uh, working Them Angels. Working Them Angels. Very good. 24%. Really? Okay, see if you can get the rest. Oh, come on, man. Uh, the Larger Bowl. No. Oh. Armor and Sword, 14%. And I was really surprised. The Larger Bowl only got 5%. Hmm. I think well, it's just because the word bowl is in the title. You think why is bowl a hard word to say or something? No, I just think it, you know, I don't know. Bowl. Bowl just bowl. doesn't, if you say bowl enough, <laughs> it just doesn't roll off the it tongue. It loses all meaning. A lot of words are like that. If you just say them over and over and over again. Yeah, but bowl, it happens instantly. Bowl. <laughs> bowl. It's the W. It's the W, Steve. It's the W, yes. You have an email for us today? I do. And it's also concerning snakes and arrows. Nice. This is from Jeff. What's up, Jeff? Uh, he says, as much as I enjoy your guest interviews, I am very happy to hear you gents digging into an album again. That seems to be the consensus, right? People like hearing us talk about the albums more than they like hearing us talk to people. Yeah. We only have one album left though, Steve. So really, what are we going to do? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Good question. Once more, you hit it out of the park. As usual, your interpretations are open-minded and thought-provoking. You two remind me of the teacher of a wine-tasting course that I attended many years ago. The instructor did not try to tell the class what to like. Rather, he broke down the components of the wine, showing us the complexity and context of the drink, and armed us with the knowledge to appreciate the wine according to our own tastes. Wow, that's a great analogy and a great compliment. It's an excellent compliment. Uh, said, you were right that Snakes and Arrows is a great album. It's very heavy, even dark, but a stunner nonetheless. My very speculative take on it is that Neil was contemplating becoming a parent again when these lyrics were written. Oh, okay. I didn't think about that. The title is based on a child's game in Canada, or at least in Southern Ontario. We did indeed refer to the board game as Snakes and Ladders. Far Cry is a legacy song like a farewell to kings, and work in them angels addresses youthful risk-taking. The effects of religion are seen through a very personal and practical lens, as opposed to the more philosophical approach that Neil often took. Neil softens the negative effects of religion with a self-made faith. While Alex offers hope, Neil appears to hedge his bets with perseverance and resolve. In the end, Neil appeared to side with hope after all. It's a pity that the band did not have more opportunities to work with Nick Raskulenitz. The guys, and Neil in particular, really appeared to have a connection with him. Keep doing what you're doing, and thanks again, Jeff. Wow, that was a great email. Thanks so much, Jeff. Really appreciate that. Yeah. And one thing we forgot to talk about when we were talking about Snakes and Arrows is when you listen to it, 
you should swirl the CD around in your hand <laughs> first and take a nice big sniff. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. That's the, the, that's the, the wine. Forget it. <laughs> you can, I mean, when you're listening to snakes and ours, you can really taste the tannins, you know? That's true. That's true. We've got a great guest today on the Rush Fancast, Jer. Third time he's been on the show. How cool is that? Yeah, I know. First third timer. Yes. Author of more than 90 books on hard rock and heavy metal and author of the new book on Rush, the third in his series, Driven, Rush in the 90s, and in the end, Martin Popoff. Welcome back to the Rush Fancast. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Very cool. Really appreciate it. Uh, before we get started, we have to address a, a little bitty elephant in the room. Last time we had you on, we got a lot of <laughs> negative feedback about your appearance. We were really surprised by it. A okay. lot of fans were not happy with the fact that you didn't love every Rush album that came out in the 80s. Oh, dear. So we wanted to give you a chance to respond <laughs> to that and defend yourself to the Rush fans. Well, I don't think that's a surprise that there's tons and tons and tons of people all over the place, massive Rush fans of all ages that don't like certain Rush albums. So it's not, it's not much of a surprise. It's, uh, it's, it seems like a pretty, pretty low-level controversy. But uh, I'm not taking anything back, if that's what you want. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Not I just wanted to give you a chance to respond, that's all. I just think that our audience, if anybody's listening to this, they really are really into Rush. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, uh, what, what was the episode I just did? I did an episode of, uh, that's right. So I did an episode of History and Five Songs with Martin Popoff called Chameleons, right? Mm -hmm. And, I, and it, I basically looked at the main chameleons, which I would say David Bowie is your, is your number one guy. But I included Alice Cooper, uh, The Damned, Queen, and I can't remember what the last one was, but uh, actually it was Iggy Pop, I think. Yeah, it was Iggy Pop. So, I, you know, I compared them all and the reasons they are sort of like that. And some people said, what about Rush, right? And, uh, and you, you could almost put Rush in there. Uh, yeah, you know, they were almost chameleons by that safe Canadian standard where when, when you're going to veer wildly in one direction, uh, you can only veer 65, 70% sort of thing, right? So, uh, and the other thing is, I think Rush wouldn't qualify for the way that I did that episode is because they're not they're not veering wildly as chameleons. They're they're changing a little bit in a direction each time mm -hmm. and moving this way and that way. And, you know, I mean, it, it, it really isn't that, uh, you know, if you think of like uh, their stage wear and stuff like that, I mean, that that is not so chameleon like that. There's, you know, hey, this is a whole new concept album about this and and I'm a, I'm a new character and all that kind of thing. So it was it was more that way. But I can understand people bringing up Rush that way. But, yeah, I, I just didn't think, you know, Rush almost would have fit if you would have took all their albums and shuffled them and said, this one came out, then this one came right. out, then this one came out. Maybe then, right? Right. Anyways. <laughs> you know, I was saying to Jerry before we started speaking to you, you know, you've written close to 100 books, and you don't have to love every single piece of music that you write about, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, quite often I won't do a book on a band because I don't like enough of their albums or enough in a row kind of thing. And I, I think because what I, what I kind of tend to do or want to do is, is do one out one chapter on each album. Right. And I have cheated a few times where I've taken, you know, and, and called it the first 10 years. And I've done that a few times actually <laughs> come to think of it where I've, where I've taken like the last chunk of albums and just did an epilogue and kind of lumped them all together or whatever. Right. 
So, but absolutely. And then, and then what happens and totally what happens with Rush, probably more so than any other band, because it's like six books now, right? Is, uh, is I get ruined for listening to the band because it just makes me think of work. It just makes me think of how much, you know, and oh my God, thinking about typos in the book or whatever. So Rush is a band that I, I, um, I can't listen to very much yet. And then that usually wears off once the, once the feeling that it's work wears off. So. So let's get into the book. So it starts obviously with Roll the Bones. And as you say, Roll the Bones drops. And then a week later, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 comes out. And the week after that, Nevermind comes out. So already we're starting the 90s, not at, with Rush at a disadvantage, but Rush kind of doing something completely different than where rock and roll is going. Yeah. Can you address that a little bit? Yeah, that's interesting because not only Rush are doing something completely different, they're not even doing it in a group with other people. Like they're yeah. not even in a clump of anything. They're not they're not making hair metal albums, they're not making thrash albums, um, they're not making grunge albums. So they're alone already. I mean, they've been alone well, they they've been alone probably since you know, since you could almost put them in a hard rock basket in in the late seventies, they they were kind of on their own trip, and they really you couldn't you couldn't compare Rush to anybody. Come to think of it, starting probably in and around Permanent Waves, and then you go through all those things they went through, and then here they are. They've been doing this kind of um, slightly more trio, and I won't even call it power trio, but slightly more uh, acoustic instrument trio version of the band for two records. And you're right, this massive Geffen juggernaut takes over where you've got Guns N' Roses who who come back and still do great. I think I think those records go like seven times platinum or something. And you've got mm-hmm. Grunge at the same time, also on Geffen. So there's uh, there's these these two big massive musical movements that one is expiring and one is starting and they're both going to be filled with double and triple and quadruple platinum albums. And, and Rush is now doing Presto again, which didn't, you know, knock the socks off of anybody, nor, nor did the previous album, at least one album. I mean, there was probably more excitement around power windows, but um, you know, two albums, now three albums in a row, they're, they're totally on their own trip and it, and it hasn't fit in anything that's going on. So yeah, this is uh this is the big, big grunge moment where you get the massive, massive grunge album. And then grunge is just a huge deal and, and sucks up all the oxygen in the room with, uh, you know, some Pearl Jam albums and Soundgarden albums, Soundgarden and Alice in Chains albums for the next four or five years. So absolutely. Yeah. It, 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 uh, it makes sense that, that literally rush is just like, not part of the cultural fabric. And one thing we've been surprised about Martin doing this podcast is how many Rush fans love Roll the Bones. Roll the Bones isn't one of Jerry and I's favorites. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing not yours either. No. But fans love it. Love Roll the Bones. Well, and it, and it was a success for them again, right? I mean, it it had it it managed to bring them back a little bit in terms of some record sales. So they had strongish record sales and then they kept rolling as a, as a live band. So, you know, they're still an, an absolute going concern at this point, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, again, you know, it, it really comes down to with, with many bands, but with rush, definitely there are these tribes and, and it's, it really is down to what age you were when you, mm-hmm. when you got your first rush albums. Right. So, you know, there's, you know, most people who came in in the seventies are, are not on board at this point. Right. So what's your opinion on the rap experiment on the title track, Martin? 
Oh, I, I think it's a complete disaster. It's, it's stupid and it's not even rap. It's just a little tiny bit of rap. And it's, it's almost like not even worth talking about because it's not like they're, they're like, there's three or four songs with rap on them on here. It's just a, it's just a little silly thing on there. That's, that's not, not that big a deal, but you know, when they, when they say like all publicity is good publicity, it's like, they got a lot of kind of publicity for it, right? People talked about it at least. And it, it was, it was a semi hit song, right? Dreamline's kind of a hit song, right? But yeah, it's, uh, it, it, it probably accounts for the fact of a good 15, 20% of the record sales of this, of this album are because of the column inches that they got from people complaining about that. <laughs> and it was a, it was a concert staple too. They always played it live. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's a very, it's a very catchy song. It's a very rhythmic song and, uh, and, you know, just, dee -dee, you know, all, it's kind of all over the place and it's, yeah. it's easy to catch on. It's, it's, it's a hooky rhythm, right? So yeah. that's it's one thing about Rush. They actually, Neil could actually write, write hooks on the drums, which is a super rare thing. You, that's, that's probably his biggest forte, you know, and the reason that, that he's the greatest air drum drummer of all time is, is he could write hooks on the drums. And on tour for uh, Roll the Bones, they brought along Primus, which to me is the best Rush opening band. They played with them twice. I think they both played with them on the Counterparts tour. What kind of influence do you think that Primus had on their next album, Counterparts, a much, much heavier, heavier album? Wow, uh, that's an interesting question. I've never really thought of what influence it would have had on Counterparts. I mean, what influence it would have had on the band was, was they, they, they're starting to see um, bands who are more fearlessly creative than them and even more creative than them, right? So they're more fearless and, and creative and fearlessly creative. I mean, this is a super, super creative band, what, you know, led by a bassist as well. Um, very eclectic, strange music. I mean, if, if Rush thought they were extreme, well, look at these guys, right? And there's a little bit of that thing where, um, you know, built into the, the mix all the time when you pick these bands that you think are, somewhat better than you in some ways when you pick them you also you also know that they're not going to go over as well because it's too eclectic and and you know they're they're there to see us anyway so there's there's a little bit of not not that they did this maliciously or anything but there's a little bit of built-in failure to them they know they're going to put primus out there and most fans aren't aren't going to be like a big mosh, you know, putting, putting together a big mosh pit in front of them and just, yeah, Primus, Primus, Primus. There's going to be a lot of like head scratching anyways, but Rush is also trying to provoke um, their fans into growing and to being as, as big music nerds and music fans as they are. And so at the same time, and even more so, it's more of an altruistic thing where they're, where they're literally saying, these guys are great. I want to show you these guys and, and putting them in front of, crowds in hockey barns so that's what they're really doing but you know management probably is somewhat thinking a little more maliciously and thinking ah these guys obviously ain't gonna blow rush off the stage in any way shape <laughs> or form let it let them do what they do let the kids have fun and uh, and obviously um you know be, because there probably are bands out there that if you gave them a chance and put them in front of them that there could be a certain amount of that blowing the headliner off the stage not so much in Russia's situation. It's it's a little different. This isn't a band like Aerosmith in the seventies that's going to go on all drugged out and can be blown off the stage. Rush Rush can't be blown off the stage. A because their fans love them so much, and B they've made sure 
that that they've got an awesome, awesome, huge show to go with everything, right? So, you know, it's just not going to happen for a lot of reasons in this case. But uh, but in a lot of cases, you know, bands did have to worry about that. Kiss always was very, very self-conscious about that, right? So Rush went back to Peter Collins for counterparts, Martin. He had last worked with them on Hold Your Fire, I believe. Do you think his work with Queensryche earlier in the 90s influenced this album in any way? Yeah, it probably helped because it's it's not very much a Peter Collins sound at all. It's it's probably more of a, a Kevin Shirley thing. Peter Collins is probably more the uh, you know, the Mr. Big, the guidance guy, the 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 guy, you know, moving things along where, you know, probably it's more of a Kevin Shirley situation in in getting the tones and getting the sounds. Obviously, you know, thank God everybody kind of semi decided against this this crazy english idea of uh, of twee sounds for radio or whatever they're doing it for who knows what they're doing it for but having no bass and uh lots of treble and lots of mid and lots of annoying sounds which is which you know that's all over the rupert Hines stuff too but it's not on this album this is this is the best sounding album really this is probably the best sounding album if you bring in a, a you know a conservative point of view as well, uh, this is probably the best sounding album through the entire rest of the career moving forward, and the rest of the career going back probably to, I would say, Signals. I think maybe a lot of that sound also had to do with uh, Caveman uh, Kevin Shirley because yeah. he didn't have the kind. Well, he didn't have a lot of experience with Rush as a fan, so he didn't go in there being like. Oh my God! This is Rush. He he was free to to speak his mind on what he thought would be a better sound for them. Yeah, he didn't have a lot of experience with anything. He was pretty new at the time and the whole in the whole thing. But uh, I th- I think it's just comes down to a very basic fact that it's like we gotta we gotta hear the bass drum, we gotta hear the bass guitar, we gotta hear the drums. Everything's got some got need some guitars in here. I mean, it's, it's probably no more complicated than that. It's like let's just fill up the frequencies again. And do you think that had to do with with the? I know that they were influenced a lot by the great bands of the grunge era. But do you think it was a more self conscious kind of nod to the grunge era? Like, well, these guys are doing hard rock like we used to do, so why don't we do it too? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they really didn't talk about music very much. The Rush guys, right? And their influences. I have a feeling they listened to a lot more music than they ever talked about. I think they were somewhat inspired by that stuff, but it, but it's more, I have a feeling that they were more inspired. And now that I think back to the interviews and stuff, I have a feeling they were more inspired by coming out of the the previous few records, just a little bit disappointed in the sonics of it. I, I don't think, you know, they, they defended them to death. I mean, they really did defend Presto and, but Alex would be the least of the defenders of these records, but Getty, Getty uh, was always a defender of the songwriting and the singing. And uh, I would say Neil was a defender of uh, trying all the new doodads out. But I think once they got a few months distance from those records, they were like, eh, they don't sound very good, do they? Right. And, you know, they, they realized in themselves. I, I, I think it's more that than anything, that looking at their own music rather than, you know, a large amount of grunge music or anything. So you mentioned Alex Martin. There was some tension between Alex and Getty, I think, prior to this album coming out while it was being written. And Alex won out this time. The guitars are back. 
Yeah, the guitars are back. Uh, you know, I, I think sometimes we overstate how heavy Counterparts is. I don't think it's really as heavy as, as we sort of make out. But, uh, you know, but having Animate and Stick It Out as the two most famous songs on it, that causes us to think that way because they are both pretty heavy songs and Stick It Out quite extremely heavy. There's even heaviness of, of songwriting to these songs that wasn't on. It, it's almost like the, the previous songs you couldn't even heavy them up and they would sound heavy. I, I think they're also writing heavier at the same time. And the sonics are somewhat heavier, but there's still quite a bit of acoustic guitar and, and mellow moments across the album. So again, it, it's that Canadian thing, right? Like I, I always, I always think about, um, you know, what is Canada? Canada is America with 20% less and 20% more. You know, uh, the, the problems are, are not as bad and the great stuff is not as good. <laughs> like that's literally it. That's Canada, right? So, so Rush is um, Rush. Uh, if if they're ever going to overcorrect, or if, if they're going to correct on something they were doing before, or try to get back to heaviness, because they're Canadian, there's twenty percent that's going to be missing because they can't do anything too extreme, right? They they can only, you know, th this is a ship. This is a this is like a big this is like a big ocean liner. Um, so when when it changes direction. You know, between roll the bones and counterparts, it's it's just changing a little bit. It's not a massive change. So speaking of changing a little bit, we move on to test for echo. And uh, based on our experience talking to Rush fans, I think this might be Rush's least liked album among Rush fans. Do you think so, Jer? Oh yeah, I think so. What do you think, Martin? I think so too. And and again, um, you know, in the face of just being kind of uh, ignored out there. And, and not really being part of the pop culture fabric, which at this point is, uh, you know, uh, what, what would you say? I mean, it, it, grunge is giving way to hard alternative. There's industrial music at the same time. Heavy metal is, is, is not in a good, good place. In fact, if you were a 70s band, you were not in a good place at this point. So, so all those 70s guys, all those 80s guys have gone away. So it, it's kind of a youth culture time, right? Um, and Rush is clearly not a young band. White Zombie, Smashing Pumpkins is massive right around this time, right? With Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness and all that, right? Um, but yeah, th so they turn in an album that the songwriting is just kind of annoying. Um, yeah, the production is, how would you describe it? I mean, I mean, it's almost like the guitars are, are even louder and higher and more multi-tracked than on counterparts, but I think the bottom end is is taken away a little bit. So it's almost like got a um, pop punk or a SoCal punk production. It's it's kind of noisy and exciting, whereas Counterparts was more like full bodied and sober in its tones. And this one's a little bit more it, it's it is a little more youthful and exciting from the production end of things. But it sounds like an album that really didn't need to be written it wasn't like these songs were like dying to get out from the band or whatever. So yeah, boy, you know, least liked in the entire catalog is probably, probably somewhat true. I mean, maybe, maybe hold your fire. I don't know. Maybe presto you, you could put up there at the same time. No one's going to slight any of the seventies stuff. I don't think you're certainly not, you know, the, the first three of the eighties you're, or four, I guess um, you're, you're not going to be slighting those ones either. And, and like I say, power windows, I remember, you know, the, the bloom was still on. Um, it was exciting, the changes they did around Power Windows. And I think everybody, you know, gave them 
the pass on that one to do what they were doing on that. All, all of that technology was still all kind of new and fresh. And, and it was quite a big difference from Grace Under Pressure. But, but yeah, at this, point, it, at this point, it's almost like, eh, do we need a test for Echo? And Peter Collins also produced this. Do you think that he kind of maybe fell back on his uh, previous ways with the band? I don't know if it's previous ways because again, I mean, it, it's it's literally like we've now heard three different production palettes, uh, sound pictures out of him over the course of four albums, right? So it's uh, it's it's pretty odd, um, but uh, but no, it's it it is it isn't like that old sound. It's it's almost like it's recorded heavy, but it's not written heavy. And Neil famously reinvented himself prior to this album coming out, working with Freddie Gruber. Any thoughts on that, Martin? Yeah, you know, I mean, even as a drummer myself, it's hard to really tell. I mean, there is, there does feel, uh, it does feel like there is a little bit more of a circle, circular motion to what he's doing and a little more swing. But, um, you know, it's again, it's it's the Canadian version of uh, of reinventing himself, right? There's 20% lopped off of, 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 you know, moving past a drummer into regular people actually being able to notice. It's, it's not there. It's too subtle. Um, so, so no, I, I, I don't think you really see a big difference. I mean, I'm sure it rejuvenated his love, love of the drums again. I mean, he was, he was quite fawning about Freddie and that whole thing, right? He just loved that whole, that whole concept of what he was doing there. Yeah. I remember reading that he said that at, to that point, Test for Echo was, he felt was one of his stronger and better achievements on the drums. Test for Echo, yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah, it it is pretty interesting that he uh, he thinks that way. And you know what that represents to me? Uh, it re- represents to me the surprising defense of various albums that the the guys would have, all for different reasons. And it comes up all over the place. Like like you go, wow, Neil Neil really likes Hold Your Fire. Well, that's pretty interesting, you know. So so it's it just shows the the um the complexity of their creative minds what they ended up liking, right? You know, when they would talk about or joke about, um, you know, this was a little bit of a mistake or that was a little bit of a mistake, even that's downplayed. I mean, I mean, over time, they have quite a bit of fondness for what they what they did. I, I really don't feel they really felt like they actually did make that many mistakes throughout the, the catalog. So, Martin, shortly after Test for Echo, Neil tragically lost his wife and daughter in less than a year. How close was this to being the end of the band? Oh, it was de- definitely quite close. And the reason is, um, is because obviously partly because of the tragedy of it all, but also because Neil was this, this, this was, this is a bunch of guys that um, had a lot of other interests in life. And, you know, even the guys who really liked the touring didn't like it as much as other bands like the touring, like that would be Getty and Alex maybe tied and then Neil Neil quite a bit down below that um he didn't want to go on these long tours and and this has been this has been brewing for quite a while now so it's almost like there could have been many things that would have caused them to quit doing this because i don't think they were they were as married to doing this as as many bands are so uh yeah i i would say i would say um you know, it's it's a terrible thing to happen. And obviously there's only three of them in there. Um, and that was the other thing. I mean, there's no way they were going to replace Neil, um, even if he didn't want to do it. I don't think that was ever going to be an option. Uh, he's too integral to the whole thing. They're buddies. There are only three of them. You know, you could have replaced him as a drummer. Let's go there. I mean, it's it's a terrible thing to say, but but you can replace an instrumentalist 
you can't replace a lead singer and you really can't replace the lyricist in this band. Mm -hmm. um, but you could replace the drummer. You really could. Um, but the fact that he's also the lyricist and they're such a team and they're such nice guys and they really got along uh, for all of those reasons, you, you, you couldn't replace them. But then we move on to Vapor Trails. You say in the book that you're a big fan of Vapor Trails, both versions, <laughs> both the uh, the different yeah. uh, versions of them. Yeah, I, I, I never I never had a big problem with the sound when it came out. I thought it was a little radical, but that's really it. I mean, bands make radical sounding albums all the time. I'm talking about the production here. But on the other end, the, the music itself was really radical. I mean, this is a big, big difference for Rush. It was really cool that they almost created a new kind of music. And I don't even know how to describe it. I mean, I'm do, I've been doing a lot of, I'm going to be working on a David Bowie thing that I probably shouldn't really go into, but um, uh, there, there's an interesting comparison you could make between Vapor Trails and quite a few later period David Bowie albums and the Morrissey catalog. Wow. And it's that Vapor Trails kind of creates a new kind of music but on the face of it, it seems pretty conservative, but still you can't really quite pinpoint, you know, is this, is this new wave? Is it post-punk? Is it prog? Is it hard rock? And that, you know, that you really feel that on the Morrissey albums. I mean, you could go, you could have a guitar, bass and drums, guitar through a distortion pedal, just normal plain old heavy guitar on a Morrissey album. You could have guitar, bass, drums, vocals, on nine out of 13 of the songs and you still go, huh, I don't know what kind of music that is. And it's, and it's totally conservative. Um, and that, and I feel that way about a lot of David Bowie albums. And I I've been talking about even black star that way, that it's, it's a little bit of like a kraut rock album, but it's just, it's just this sort of like sort of jazz band making this music. And yet it sounds odd. It's like, is this dance music? Like, but it's all conventional instrumentation. And that's what I feel Vapor Trails is. They almost created a new kind of music while just being a power trio. So just using normal tooling, nothing all that crazy sounding, nothing particularly weird, um, you know, acoustic drum set and guitar through a distortion pedal and bass and maybe some chords here and there uh, and then a singer uh, and that's it. Um, yet it sounds like um, like a completely new kind of music. And that's the, the other reason I've always compared that album a little bit to um, the, the red, blue, yellow period of King Crimson. They created a really different kind of music. Like that was a, a completely off the wall, brand new kind of music. So it's not quite the David Bowie, Morrissey, Vapor Trails thing. And even there, it didn't really sound like that's not even conventional instrumentation in a way um, that they were. They, they had a lot of weird new sounds also combined with the weird new writing. So that was like way off on Mars. But I compare it to that in a way because it, it feels like it's on it, it. It approaches that cool, really subtle, artistic, strange, creative level that you got off of. King Crimson Discipline, that red album, that that red discipline album, when that came out, uh, because that's the rawest of those three albums. When that when that album came out, and then way later when Vapor Trails came out, I, I think I think Discipline is 1980. Um, so Vapor Trails, when it came out, it reminded me of Discipline um, pr pretty much immediately. It it just it just felt like there was this cool kinship there between uh, you know, this this was a record 
with, uh, with a lot of creative purpose, just to get the antithesis, the opposite of Tess for Echo. I just thought like, like, wow, they are really doing something new again. And it, and it isn't just about, oh, there's new technology and we're not being, and they weren't being influenced by other bands or new technologies or 80s things or other doodahs or, or you know, new wave music or anything. They were making a whole new kind of music and, and it was all literally about creativity. And, that, and that's what it reminds me of discipline. Now, does that have to do with the fact that the, the break they took was so long as opposed to what Neil had gone through? I think it had to do with the way they kind of just jammed that stuff out. And, and it just, all, those, all that stuff kind of grew really organically. Over a lot of time, they didn't put any time limits on it. I'm, I'm sure they grew uh, over, that, over that time period as well. Um, but um, Victor comes out, right? In, mm-hmm. in the middle there. Um, yep. And my favorite headache, does it come out before Vapor Trails? Yes. So, it's, so, so yes, so you get two solo albums. And, and so that's the other thing. Victor, Victor uh, more so than my favorite headache, really starts leading, leaning towards that as well. Because Victor reminds me of the Robert Fripp solo album, Exposure, and that King Crimson stuff at the same time. So Vic, Victor's almost like the wild version of my favorite headache. And, and it's the one that, that has, has the closer kinship. And then the thing Alex says, which is kind of interesting, is that he gained a lot of confidence from making Victor. So when he came into Vapor Trails, I think he was a new guy. Um, Getty, not so much. I mean, Getty did go off and make a pretty safe uh, album mm-hmm. that, honestly, I think my favorite headache sounds like just a melange of Tess for Echo, Roll the Bones, Counterparts, Presto. Uh, it literally sounds like a Tiles album, uh, you know. Uh, so so I, I, don't think, I don't think his record is, is as bizarre or as creatively odd as alex's was and i think alex's has that throughput from discipline through vector into vapor trails so on the vapor trails tour rush went to brazil for the first time and they did the russian rio dvd and album it just really showed the international appeal of rush i mean amazing just just looking at that crowd yeah, and there's there's a lot of funny little things in the in the um, in the book and in the interviews, right? Um, ab- about all this sort of thing, and and uh, you you kind of learn a little bit about that, like like how the band. It, this is not a world band; they aren't really a, one of these world traveled bands, like like say in our field, anyways, Iron Maiden or Deep Purple, those kinds of bands, right? Mm-hmm. Azeroth, even for God's sakes, I mean, they've been many places, so. Um, even though they were kind of world travelers themselves, um, you know, but that was, they were not as a band and, you know, there seemed to be a little bit of a dig at Ray. Uh, like why, why, you know, why were you scared to do that? It's almost like they were wondering, you know, it probably in the back of their mind, they're, they're thinking that, that the office is almost too lazy to go through all the work to get us into all these other countries. Right. And, and then, and then the band was like, ah, yeah, well, that's fine too. Cause maybe we don't even like touring all that much or whatever. Hmm. Right. And then there was that, you know, that, that uh, Japanese experience Neil always talks about and, and witnessing the guy beat, beaten up on the gal. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. So the funny thing is they do this and there, there is that sense of, boy, what have we been missing all this time? And what if we had visited all these exotic countries during this time? Maybe our career would have been even bigger. But here we are, we're getting to see this. And this is pretty amazing. And it's almost like you could you could almost like psychologically see them going back to the office and 
swatting Ray across the back of the head and going, <laughs> you know, why weren't we doing this all, all along? Right. And, you know, Ray would probably say, well, I asked you to, and you would didn't want to, you know, or whatever. Right. So you, you, you never know, right? Like obviously management always wants you to be working, but, uh, but yeah, R Rush is not a band that particularly were one of these cosmopolitan uh, all world bands, like a lot of bands were. So. And do you think that that experience had anything to do with them recording feedback? Maybe thinking about, uh, you know, their origins a little bit more? Boy, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I would connect the two. Um, I, I joke with a lot of people these days, but feedback is a disaster. I think, I think it's a terrible selection of songs and even the versions aren't very good. Um, you know, in all the times you've seen bands do covers, this is really pretty low quartile, I would say, uh, compared to other bands doing covers. Like, number one, I, you know, I really get annoyed when bands cover material that is material from their youth and they're doing it for themselves and it's not the stuff that the fans want to hear. And they don't realize that these songs are written in a very rudimentary way from 50 years ago and they're not that great. They, don't, they aren't going to stand up to today's standards, but they're, they're too blinded by their own nostalgia at loving these songs growing up that they think, oh, this is going to be great. We'll put it out here. And the fans being... 15 and 20 and 30 years younger than them goes, I don't want to listen to this moldy, crappy old 60s stuff, right? And the versions aren't great and it's not that well recorded and it's an EP. I've done a whole episode of History in Five Songs, how I hate EPs. You know, I, I just finished the damn thing and three more songs, make it an album so we can all talk about it as an album and we don't have to, you know, put it, put a little asterisk on it and go, well, it's not really an album, but uh, they did this album and then you correct the guy. No, it's an EP and whatever. Right. So, you know, EPs are just so annoying for that reason as well. Um, but no, I, I just, uh, you know, there are so many examples of bands picking great songs to cover and doing amazing versions of them. And this is not it. So what songs do you think Rush should have done? Or do you think they shouldn't have done a covers album at all? Well, so, so covers is a funny thing. I mean, the first time as super deep music fans that you saw bands cover the way you want bands to cover was when Iron Maiden started putting all those B-sides on the backs of their singles. Right. And they were interesting songs they might not even have been heavy songs, but they were heavy songs by bands that weren't that heavy and Maiden heavied them up. And then the next, the next stage when that happened was when Metallica started covering songs that you as a super deep mu music fan or metal fan would have wanted them to cover. It was almost like they were reading your mind and covering exactly what you as a fan wanted to cover. So there, there's, there's, a, there's a history in the evolution of covering things that those two bands kind of started the wave on and you go, all right, guys are, you know, no more, no more Rolling Stone satisfaction and no more <laughs> under my thumb and, and, and covering, you know, the Beatles back in the USSR, Eleanor Rigby, like covers up to that point were very, very conservative and, and feedback 20 years later goes back to that super conservative, expected, boring, dull version of covering. So I would, I would have liked to seen them cover uh, no means no or Voivod or, uh, or, uh, budgie you know like pick pick some contemporary power trios you know of all the you know do a canadian power trio thing or something right or recover something that just came out like the previous year 
or, or something like that, right? Or or um or even cover something that uh, it was maybe in the prog world that people would find it funny that you covered, like like cover that Rush song, not by Rush, called "Carry On Wayward Son" or something <laughs> like that, right? You know what I mean? Cover Sticks, cover wow. Angel, you know. Um, there are so many cool things they could have done yet. It's like, ah, here's some songs you grew up with and, uh, you know, hope you enjoy seven and seven is or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Steve, do you remember the, <laughs> we did an entire episode on feedback. Do you remember some Steve, of the songs that we oh, heart full of soul summertime blues? <laughs> I mean, summertime blues, like, come on, you know, I mean, Blue Cheer was even covering Summertime Blues to make it famous. <laughs> and then the Who covered it again, you know, to, and, and it's like, okay, Summertime Blues, a boring old caveman song from the 50s. Plus, it's been covered a million times. You're not going to see that's the other thing with covers. You're not going to improve on Blue Cheer's version. And you're not going to uh, improve on Who Live at Leeds version. So that's another reason you want to do a cover is like, is like, the, the old version was a good song, but there's no good versions of it out there, right? Mm -hmm. So that's another reason you do covers, right? That's a reason you do live albums too. That's a reason people love Kiss Alive because it's it's better versions of songs that were kind of recorded weekly, right? So so those there's all these reasons to do this. Crossroads is on this thing. Uh, Shapes of Things is on here, right? You know, oh my God. It, these, these, are like, these are like some of the most covered songs of all time. Right. And this is supposed to be a crazy creative band. I mean, you literally you literally would have a hard time finding um, more predictable and pedestrian songs to cover than they did on this. Thing. OK, Mark, oh, you're just trying now. Terrible to get emails. Brutal. You're just, you're just <laughs> baiting the public on this one. No means no, man. A whole album of no means no songs. Now, that would be cool. I was going to say, I agree with the song choice because Steve and I did an episode on feedback and we discussed the songs, but we had our own ideas for what they should have done. Yeah. Um, at the moment, the only thing I can remember is uh, them covering Gates of Steel by Devo, I think was one of my ideas. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, give me some time and I'll do much better than the ones I just rattled <laughs> off the top of my head. But, but you're right. I mean, there's, there's so many, so many ways it, it could have been really cool. And, and, they, they could have made it thematic in various ways, mm -hmm. right? Could have done a thematic thing with it, you know? You know, they could have um, done the same kind of thing they do, did with their, with their album covers, right? They, they could have taken a Hugh Syme approach and been clever about it. And, and you literally, in about half an hour with these three guys, my God, they, they could have come up with probably two dozen clever ideas how to do a covers album. Let's get back to Martin's positive side and talk about snakes and arrows. <laughs> what are your thoughts on snakes and arrows? Jerry and I feel like this is a, an amazing album. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, and it's a forgotten album too. And, uh, and I even forget it just kind of the same way I forget Grace Under Pressure all the time for some reason. It's weird. That, I was going to say that Grace Under Pressure is another kind of forgotten yeah, one. Yeah, why is that? Eh? Why is that? Um, but, um, but yeah, it's it's uh, I love the production. It's it's got kind of a bold, different sort of production to it. Not bold in in like bold sounds, but it's got that acoustic guitar massaged into things, which is kind of cool. Jangly, you can almost hear fret noise and stuff going on. Uh, it's long, um, pretty interesting, uh, heavy at times. Um, so it it's almost like they're reinventing themselves again, which is kind of cool. And reinventing themselves the way they did 
kind of all along the way as a band that has nobody you can compare them to. So, so they kind of literally done this probably in a good way, in definitely in a good way on vapor trails and definitely in a good way on snakes and arrows. Um, and, and probably they weren't so different from the world on test for echo and not even really, you know, even counterparts is a pretty conservative album. It's just a really good album, but it's, it's fairly conservative. Right. Um, and then that previous sound is, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that successful and not very conservative, but here you've got a sound that's more conservative than vapor trails. But again, again, it's, it's, it's down to that. It's down to like listening to a David Bowie album uh, full of songs with guitar, bass and drums or a Morrissey album like that. And you go, wow, they're really doing something different with regular conservative tooling. And um, that was the first time they worked with uh, Nick rescue Lennitz too. And he, I think, brought them, I don't know, but did he bring to them a youthful perspective? Did he bring to them just a completely different perspective? Did he challenge them a little bit more than maybe other producers did? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I think he, um, you know, he didn't, he didn't really achieve trying to get them to sound like the 70s, but I think he probably was one of the guys like a Kevin Shirley who would kind of push them to rediscover the magic of, uh, of being the who essentially right um so i i think he was getting them in that direction but it didn't really happen in a big way until the next album where it, mm. where it really explosively i mean they are the who on on clockwork angels. angels right and not so much on this record really um here here they're more like a cross between being pretty loose and laid back like being an organic jammy sort of band and Actually, really, a little bit of that roll the bones presto, I think, is still is still in this album. Don't like the album cover at all. Don't like the title either, because <laughs> uh, it's always it's always a hard one to kind of remember, right? Um, but uh, but no, I, I think uh, I, I think again they they triumph creatively in just doing different things with regular tools. So let's talk about Clockwork Angels, Martin, in Jerry and I, our opinion, one of Russia's greatest albums. And also their final album. Number one, do you agree? And secondly, how rare is that for a band to put out such an amazing album as their last album? Yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, it is a little bit along a trend of uh, of most bands from the seventies rediscovering the heaviness or what they did in the seventies. So there's a lot of bands who do this and do this well. Cheap Trick, Heart, Motorhead, even Deep Purple, certainly. Deep Purple sounds like, you know, essentially they've been achieving a Clockwork Angels for five albums in a row now. In fact, probably everything from the Steve Morris era. So Rush kind of did that and maybe they would continue to do that. Um, maybe there's a little bit of a play for acceptance there, um, but also um, just a desire to rock out. Um, and they and they definitely rock out on here. And Nick definitely achieves kind of like a no-nonsense super heaviness of sound the one the one thing i don't like about it is the band almost never thought in a in a heavy metal hard rock context in terms of the writing i mean there's certainly a handful of songs in the 70s that are that way but by the time you get all the way to this last album there's a bunch of songs on here that are are heavy as hell but the riffs are not all that great they're they're a little bit grungy and just banging around, right? And grungy with a little bit of that thing where people 
um, will make an excuse and, and call something bluesy. But what they're really saying is it's just not, it's more brown. It's more like not attractive. Um, so there's, there's a little bit of that to this album, I think. So, so the heaviness, I wish, was a little more note dense and a little more riffy. But other than that, really cool. It's amazing that they did a concept album. That is really cool. It's a pretty complicated, strange concept, which reminds me a little bit. I think people over the years will talk about this album a lot more the way they talk about The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, where they go, wow, what the heck is this even about, right? It's, it's going to fall into that sort of thing, right? Where, where it's like, there's a lot of cool, weird stuff going on in this album, but I don't know if this, if this story really makes sense, right? Um, so, a, and, and that's the way people look at Lamb Lies Down on Broadway now. Granted, it's considered the second greatest progressive rock album of all time, so that's really cool. Um, What's the first? Close to the Edge every time. Oh. It wins the poll always. Yes, sure. close to the edge. Always wins number one. Lamb lies down to Broadway. Always wins number two. But yeah, so that's amazing that they did that. And it's and it's heavy and it's long and it's pretty cool. And I'm not crazy about the album cover again <laughs> on this one either. Um, but uh, but yeah, really, really great way to to blaze out. A little bit like Van Halen, right? Van Halen blazes out on a, on it actually for kind of the same reasons, right? Um, you lost a key member, sadly, to to death. Uh, but Van Halen goes out with one of the rippingest, most heaviest albums of all time. And, and Rush kind of does the same thing. So shortly after this, Martin, Rush finally gets into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. How significant is this for the band, for the fans, for Rush's legacy? I think one of the cool things about it is there was a lot of talk about how um, the people made it happen. And, and it was almost like a people's revolution. And that you don't hear too often with these Hall of Fame inductions that you wish would happen and they eventually do happen. I haven't over the over the years since this happened, which was what, around 2011, 2013, 2010, something 2013, like 2013. So. It definitely was part of the narrative when they got in, which was quite refreshing that, that it was almost like, you know, the world is going to revolt if Rush doesn't get in. And, and when bands would get in later on, you did not hear that narrative as much. It was almost like, well, great. Yay. They got in. Finally, that's good. You know, maybe they were nominated once and, and didn't get in. So Rush got in on their first first time, right? I believe. Right. Mm -hmm. and, yep. and so that's also a badge of honor that a lot of bands don't have. Now, Rush doesn't have the badge of honor of getting in super long time ago, um, but they do have that honor. And I think they are probably the band. Most people who follow this stuff are going to think about and say that it's it's kind of like a groundswell of fan revolt that that more or less got them in. Um, and I, I think it opened up a, a new way of thinking. And, uh, and I think the hall of fame got quite a kick out of it. And, and you, you started to see, it's almost like rush opened the door a little bit for, uh, for a little more prog and a little more hard rock. Yeah. I think once the rock hall of fame, whoever was running that thing saw the reaction that rush got from the fans at the ceremony, they were like, Oh, maybe there's something, maybe there's something to bands like this. Yeah. Yeah, because it's it's literally the kind of band that uh, 
that you know rock critics like the least. They're they're progressive, they're heavy, and this is this is like the uh, you know these are the people who thought Laura Nero should get in, right, and stuff like that, right. So I mean they can go pretty deep, and you know not nothing against Laura Nero, but I mean there's there's bands quite a ways down the the food chain. But if you're a great singer songwriter, that's that's kind of what they like. So it's a little bit of New York and it's a little bit of L.A. avocado mafia singer songwriter, the troubadour set country rock, all that kind of stuff, uh, Detroit, you know, so there's, so there's, um, there's that slant to the whole Yan Werner kind of, you know, the hall of fame really lines up with what Rolling Stone kind of likes. Right. And, and so, you know, progressive rock and heavy metal are way down the totem pole of, uh, of what, what they like and rush happens to combine the two. So. So Martin, uh, fast forward for us 50 years, a hundred years from now, maybe even the year 2112, how is rush remembered by rock fans in the future i think neil's gonna go down as as the greatest drummer of all time or the most recognized or the most remembered um because there's there's a lot of records um where some of these other guys didn't have nearly as many records like your john bonhams or whatever um so i i think i think neil when you take the edges off of all the complexity of knowing these things with the passage of time i think neil's gonna definitely stand out and I think those big albums will stand out and I think their handful of hits will stand out. Everything else will be pretty, pretty forgotten, but you're, but you're always going to have Tom Sawyer and, and YYZ and uh, Red Barquetta and Limelight and maybe, maybe Closer to the Heart, maybe Fly By Night. So, so they'll have some hits that'll endure and some full albums that'll endure. But um, yeah, I, I almost think uh, it's, it's an odd I'm I'm only thinking about this for the first time, but I I think the thing that's almost gonna last the longest is Neil. Totally makes sense. The name of the book is Driven, Rush in the Nineties, and in the end, Martin Popoff. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you guys. It was fun. So the first thing I want to point out, Jer, is that Martin Popoff is Canadian. So all those things he said about Canadians, he's Canadian. Yes, I was going to <laughs> I was going to jump in and say, I just want to, I just want to say that this podcast does not endorse anything that Martin is saying about Canada or Canadians. But he can say those things because he is Canadian. Sure. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just not endorsing them is what I'm trying to say. I don't think we're going to get any emails about that, but I do think we're going to get emails about his thoughts on feedback. Feedback. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, it's not one of Rush's best loved albums, but he really hates it. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I agree with him. I think when we did our episode on it, I agreed that uh, I said that maybe the choices weren't the most adventurous. He took it, you know, to the next level, though. Yeah, you were a little nicer about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the thing is, look, we said this the last time we had Martin on. What I love about him is his honesty. Yeah. He's giving you his honest opinion. Yep about what he thinks of the albums. And I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a necessary skill for a, a good writer is to tell you like he thinks it is. Right. Why else would you want to buy the book or a good rock critic, which is what he is. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And you know, we talked about before we started recording, you know, just because you write a book about a subject doesn't mean you have to like that particular subject. So if he doesn't like every single rush album, doesn't mean he, He's not qualified to write the book. That's true. That's true. And in the end, he did, you know, wind up liking it. It's sort of like um, when we were talking to Eddie Trunk a couple weeks ago. He said this, basically the same thing. You, you don't like every single album 
from every band that you love. Sometimes some albums just slip through and they don't grab you. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought it was a great conversation, and uh, we thank Martin again for coming on. You can find us on Twitter, at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are at TheRushCast. Email Jerry. Let him know what you thought of our conversation with Martin Popoff. Let us know what you thought of his thoughts about Rush's albums at therushcast at gmail.com. The bass intro and outro was done by Lex, masterfully as always. And Jer, hope you got a great quote for us. Yes, I'm going to quote from Driven, which of course is the name of the book. All right, how about oh, that? Good choice. Driven to the margin of error, driven to the edge of control, driven to the margin of terror, driven to the edge of a deep, dark hole. Fantastic. Thanks, Jer. All right. See you later.